Please turn with me to the 77th Psalm for this morning's text. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. In the night my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Thou hast held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart, and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Then I said, It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate on all thy work and muse on thy deeds. Thy way, O God, is holy. And what God is great like our God? Thou art the God who workest wonders. Thou hast made known thy strength among the peoples. Thou hast by thy power redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw thee, O God. The waters saw thee. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Thy arrows flashed here and there. The sound of thy thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Thy way was in the sea, and thy paths in the mighty waters, and thy footprints may not be known. Thou didst lead thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Before I pray and ask God's help in the exposition of the word, I just want to publicly thank him for answering our prayers concerning the finances last year. I uh, stood before you last Sunday and said we needed $120,000. And uh, the postmarked 1999 gifts are still coming in, but you have given that plus $100,000 in the last week of the year. So it is really quite a remarkable thing. So, Lord, we render that applause up to you as a gift to say we thank you. I have promised you year after year that as you have been faithful to us, I would say it in the great congregation to make sure that the assembly knows who gets the credit here. This is of you, Lord, that you have released your people in such a way from the love of things to enjoy blessing the nations and the city and the body with their resources. And so we lift up the cup of salvation, answering the question, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his bounty to me and say more, more, more grace, more of Christ, more love, more patience, more goodness, more kindness, more meekness, more boldness, more reconciliation, more souls, more strength, 
So draw near now, Lord, and show that you are sufficient for the year 2000 in our hearts as well as in our budgets as you speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. I think most of us know that when you look at the New Testament and how it uses the Old Testament, how it handles the Psalms, you can see that the Psalms are the worship book, the song book, the the meditation book of the early church. In other words, the early church did not say, well, the Messiah's come and the Spirit has arrived, and so we don't need those old books anymore. We've got the Christ. We've got the Spirit. We don't need that letter anymore. Because they knew, they remembered what Jesus said. I did not come to abolish. I came to fulfill. So when they read the Old Testament, they didn't read it as abolish. They read it as fulfill. For example, when they read in the Psalms, uh, meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. They didn't say, oh, this that's abolished. We didn't need to do that anymore. Rather, they filled up law of the Lord and meditation with the richer bounty of apostolic teaching and the history of the great deeds of God in Jesus that the early saints before Christ only had with regard to Moses and the prophets. So they, they didn't change the strategy of the way you live a life in God Though the content and much of the knowledge and the arsenal of truth enlarges and changes. So we know that the Psalms, like the one we just read, is not an old book to the early church and it shouldn't be to us. We shouldn't read Psalm 77 and say, good night, that thing's 3,000 years old, so what use does that have? And besides, we've got the Christ and besides, we've got the Spirit. We don't need those old Hebrew ponderings anymore. It's not the way to read the Bible or to neglect the Bible. What we have in that psalm and what we have in all the Bible is a strategy of fighting the fight of faith in the midst of the kind of thing this psalmist was experiencing. And you heard it, did you? This psalmist is very discouraged. The main thing I want to say this morning is that Christian living is a living on the Word of God. That's my main point. Christian living means living on the Word of God. That is, the Word is the substance of my communion with God. If I need God, if I want to fellowship with God, I commune with Him and I fellowship with Him through the medium of the Word of God. If I want to know Him, I know Him in His Word. If I want Him to speak to me, He speaks to me through His Word. The Word is the material the fuel of the relationship. You take the word out of the way, God becomes just a blank zero out there. You might fill him up with your own dreams about what he's like, but as far as communing with him in the truth that he is, you can't do it without the word. The word is the substance of the relationship that goes back and forth, carried and enlivened by the Holy Spirit who makes the word live and causes God to stand forth from the word and us to come alive under the word and in the word. Christian living is a living on the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We live by it. We live on it. We feed on it. We rest on it. We stand on it. We walk on it. It is the material of the communion and the fellowship. The vital 
living communion that we can have today with the risen Christ is a vital union sustained by and shaped by and guided by the word of that Christ as he once spoke it and as it's recorded now in a book called the Bible. Therefore, if you don't read the Bible daily and don't memorize the Bible in part and don't linger over the Bible and to use the words that were just read, meditate on it and remember it and muse on it. If you don't steep your mind in it, the best you can hope for is a weak Christian life. Weak Christians are vulnerable to false teachings and to all kinds of trendiness. They blow this way, they blow that way. Weak Christians are especially vulnerable to trouble. So that when trouble comes, your car gets stolen. I'm looking, but he was in the first service. One of our brothers called me on New Year's Eve and said, I came out to my house. How did he put it? Something like, I came out to my driveway to drive to church to bring a check over. And my car was stolen. <laughs> Is that one colossal test or what? Got in his hands money for the church and his God ordains for his car to be stolen. And he brought it another way. Because he's strong. I know this man. He's strong. A weak Christian? Huh? That's the way you want to be me, God? I'll be this way to you? That's weakness. I don't want a church full of weak people. I don't want to be a weak person. I want you and you want to be a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit in season. Its leaves don't wither in the drought. It doesn't blow over with all kinds of trendiness. It is there through thick and thin. When the sun is shining and when the rain is pouring, it stands. That's the kind of saints... You want to be. And that's what this text is about. The Christian life is a life lived on the Word of God. And it's intentional. It's intentional. I want to underline this purposefulness about it. So many Christians are passive in the way they live the Christian life. Coasting and drifting. Treating the Word of God like the weather. Nobody plans that the weather be a certain way. You may plan for it to be a certain way, but you don't plan the weather. God plans the weather. And it just kind of rolls over you and you take what you get. Don't treat the Word of God that way. Be purposeful. Go to the weather. Go to the Bible. Beat a path. I wrote a letter. I'm going to put it in the star this week. I wrote a letter on... New Year's Day to our elders and pastors exhorting them to get with me on this now. And I said, brothers, beat a path to the Word. Beat a path to the Word. Beat a path to the Word. Beat that path so flat, so familiar, so that when you turn blind and when the darkness comes into the life of this church... On autopilot, we're on that path. You know how to get there. When the night comes... We have day now. Most of you in this room, you're here. You've got some day in your life. You're not so dark that you're out sinning somewhere right now. You've got some day in your life. While you have day, beat a path to the Word of God so that when the night comes, you'll find it in the dark. You don't beat the path in the light, you won't find it in the dark. 
intentionality is crucial. This, this thing called the Christian life is a joyful project. I delight to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, Psalm 1, 2. I have spoken these things to you, Jesus said, that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. I spoke to you. They got written down by John here in chapter 15. Read them for your joy. Don't neglect them for your weakness. The Christian life is a joyful project with all of its pain. It is a joyful project. Now let's see this life illustrated in Psalm 77. Living on the Word of God in Psalm 77. Before I read some key verses, let me stress, this is a prayer. Psalm 77 is mainly a prayer. The Word that sustains and is the substance of a relationship with the living God is prayer-soaked Word. The main reason I say that is because so much of the Bible is prayer. So that if you read the Bible authentically in those places, you are praying. I would argue all of the Bible should be read praying. I love the word Godward. Godward. Read the Bible Godwardly. God inspired it. God providentially preserved it. God brought it into your hands. God inclined your heart to it. God broods over it by His Spirit, illumining it. God is all over this thing called Bible reading. And therefore, we should read it conscious of His presence and read it coram Deo, before the face of God. We should read it before Him. We should be conscious as we read it. This is God's Word. He's here. I read it back to you. I I read last year, or was it the year before? I'll lose track. Augustine's Confessions. You know one of those stunning things? Maybe the most stunning thing about this 300-page book called Augustine's Confessions? Every sentence in it is a prayer addressed to God. I've never seen another book like that. There probably are some. Every sentence is you, 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 you. 300 pages of talk about his life. Toward God, Godward, Godward, Godward. And I thought as I read that two years ago, I'm going to write one like that someday. 300 pages, Godward. Just God. I've never written anything like that. I can write a paragraph like that, but 300 pages of God talk to God, to God. I think of my preaching that way, even though I'm talking to you. My whole concept of preaching is this is done before God. Just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, this is done toward God. This is worship of God, what I'm doing right now. And if you understood that better, you'd respond a lot more than you do verbally. (laughs) I'll work on that this year. We'll try to teach a little about meaning amen, yes. Why don't you try to say it? Amen. Say it. See, that's not so hard. I don't... Good. I don't want any artificiality or things outside your real self, but there are times in praying when a little "Mm mm-hmm wouldn't hurt. (laughs) That's not in the manuscript here. Let's see. Yes, prayer soaked, prayer soaked. So this is a prayer, and all of our Bible reading should be prayer-filled and prayer-saturated. And that's what we have in this psalm. Now, let's look at it. 
This psalmist, his name is Asaph, was a musician, poet, saint, and uh, he was really discouraged. He was really down. Let's read it in verses 7 to 10. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Now, I believe that's typical Christian life. I don't expect 2,000 to be anything other than struggling with that. I know that over time, some people hear me preach and they get the impression somehow, and I just ponder how, that my sense is that the reason the Psalms were given is with the expectation and the demand that Christians will live at a consistently triumphant level. That's crazy. Nobody lives at a consistently triumphant level. Nobody. Period. And the Psalms are written because nobody lives that way. And they are written by people who didn't live that way for people who can't live that way because we're so frail, so fragile, so sinful, and full of so many struggles and battered by so many hard circumstances. That's reality. It's right here in verses 7 to 10. So my question is, when I think about the Christian life, I really don't, I don't think a lot about how to get Christians to live consistently triumphant lives. I don't think anybody does. I don't know if some of you believe that. I am an absolute pessimist with regard to human nature. And I don't believe that Christ has entered into this world to sanctify us instantaneously overnight, but only over time, so that when we die, then in the twinkling of an eye or at the last trumpet, we are changed. And when we see him, we become like him. Before that time, we're stumbling all the way to glory. And therefore, the Bible is so blatantly realistic about those kinds of things that it gives us great help if we will hear it for what it says. In verses 7 to 10, it's pretty clear that this Asaph fellow is in the pit, doubting God's compassion, wondering about God's reliability, thinking God's loving kindness has ceased, wondering whether he's favorable at all, saying he's changed and has become fickle, quite Against Malachi 3, I, the Lord, do not change, and therefore you are not consumed. And he says, it is my grief that the Lord has changed. This man's in trouble where we are a lot of the time. So, what's the point then of the, the way this man lives? And I want you to see his strategy for Christian living. I know he's not after Christ, before Christ, but the strategy is the same, I'm arguing. The strategy to live the Christian life, a life lived on the Word of God, is the same strategy then as now. Now, the the strategy is in verses 11 and 12. I'm going to skip it and come back to it because I want you to see the fruit and effect of the strategy first. So you've got a discouraged, low, 
dismal situation in a man's heart in verses 7 to 10. Now, I want you to read the same man with me, starting in verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. But God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people. The sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters you saw, oh God. I think he's thinking about the Red Sea and the Exodus. The the waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds were poured out. Poured out water. The skies gave forth sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters. Your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Same man. Same man. So what happened between verse 10 and verse 13? Many of you this morning are in verse 10. And I hope you want to be in verse 13. So all year long, we must learn how to do this. We go in and out, up and down. I grasp the Christian life like like this. Not like this, but like this. I think it does go up. If you're following after God, you get, get above some things as you go along. But it's not without its deep dips. All right, let's read the strategy. Verses 11 and 12. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. That's the way to live the Christian life. The strategy is a life lived on the word of God, which alone mediates the deeds and triumphs and wonders of God. Three words stand out, don't they? Remembering, meditating, and musing upon the deeds and wonders of God in history. So that's what I want for 2000. That's what I want. I want a church filled with people who remember, who meditate, who muse on the mighty deeds of God, day in and day out. Remember, meditate, muse. The central biblical strategy for living the Christian life, to come out of darkness, out of discouragement, out of doubt, is a conscious effort of the mind. Notice the intentionality here. You can see it in English. If you read Hebrew, you'd see it even more clearly. In English, it says, I shall remember. This is not somebody who said, oh, a memory just came into my mind. Wow, that's encouraging. That's not what he said. He said, I will remember. This is intentionality. This is fight for delight. Delight doesn't come automatically, folks. Not for people who are fallen creatures whose center of gravity is drifting downstream towards destruction every day. Who have a Satan who is, what do we just sing? 
on earth is not his equal. That's a trembling song. In heaven there is his equal. But nobody on earth is the equal of Satan. And Satan is after you to ruin your delight in God every single day. If you coast, you lose. There's an intentionality here. I will remember. Surely I will remember. Verse 12. I will meditate and I will muse. The reason I mention Hebrew is because the last verse of each of those pairs is a cohortative. Is that impressive? A cohortative, you stick one little letter on the end of the imperfect, a hay, and it turns it into effort and intensity. So he's saying, that's why the little word surely is stuck in there, I think, by the translators. There's no word in Hebrew that corresponds to that. That's just this cohortative idea. I shall remember, surely I will remember, I will meditate. And then he should have said, I will surely, I will muse, I will surely muse on the deeds of the Lord which are found only in the Bible. That's what I want you to do. Now, I would guess that everybody in this room, at some time or other, has said, my mind has the knowledge, but it's not making its way down to my heart, and it's producing no appropriate emotional effect. And frankly, this way you're talking about that describes the Christian life that doesn't work. That's not the way it works for me. Asaph came out that way, but it doesn't work. Now, I know there are more obstacles to joy than absence of knowledge. I know, I know that there are physical obstacles. I know that there are medical reasons. I know that there are family reasons, and I know that there are hereditary reasons. In fact, Eric Johnson shared with me a, a great essay or excerpt from a, a book by Richard Baxter, who was a great soul doctor 300 years ago, in which he was dealing with melancholy. That's the old-fashioned word for discouragement or, in its worst cases, depression. And uh, these old Puritans knew two things. They knew their souls and they knew their Bibles. The souls that they knew, they knew were connected to bodies. And they knew these bodies were connected to, they knew anything about genes, but they knew about moms and dads and granddads and great-granddads. And they knew the William Cowpers who tried to kill himself three times. And they knew it was so of his parents. And they knew it was so of his parents. And it wasn't too hard to figure out, hmm, something going on here. Physically, as well as family dynamics, and therefore, the most amazing thing about this essay was he had practical guidelines for how to eat, how to sleep, how to exercise, certain kinds of... He said, for example, I shouldn't say this, I won't, I won't say it. So, something about something to do with the way you eat and what, the posture you're in when you eat. Can you believe that? Puritans telling people what, how to sit while they eat in order to avoid melancholy, in order to avoid melancholy. So please, don't hear me unfolding this strategy of the Christian life as oblivious of the fact these matters are more complex than simply knowledge in the head. But, now, here's my question for me mainly, and I'll let you listen. When I say, I have it in my head, 
this Bible knowledge about God. And it's not working. I'm feeling low still. My question to me is, when you say, I have my head filled with Bible doctrine or Bible knowledge, is that the same as what's being said here? I will remember. Surely I will remember the deeds of old. I will meditate and I will, surely I will muse. Is that the same? Is it the same to have it on your hard drive and to have the program on the window? Looking at it, poking at it, digging around in it, thinking about it, pondering it, meditating on it. And I have a feeling, I have this little suspicion that American evangelicals are a very passive bunch of people when it comes to our emotions. They come on us and we're passive and we, we've been taught to think somebody did this to me or I did it to myself, but it's happening to me. And now, now what? Now what? And there's this, there's this absence of the great old biblical Puritan awareness. There's a strategy of life here. There's a war to be fought here. There's a delight to be struggled for here. There's an intentionality and a purposefulness here. And if you have just a little mustard seed left under the weight of the darkness to do something, there are things that can be done here that might be blessed of God with verse 13. So I don't think, and I'm just talking to myself still here, John Piper, I don't think when you say I know that about you, God, and it's not helping me. I don't think that's meditation. I don't think that's musing. I think that's coasting. I can hear the thing in the computer. It can't find the program. So what is meditation? What is musing? This is something different than saying, I've got lots of Bible knowledge in my head, and it doesn't help. That's very different than saying, I will remember something that's in my head. I'll pursue it. I'll dig around in there until I find it. And then what do you do? Okay, I found it. I've got it. Or maybe you have to dig in the Bible because your mind's just not working well enough to remember it. You go dig in there, and you dig, and you find it. Then what do you do with it? Do you do anything with it? What is meditation? What is musing? Well, let me just draw things to a close with an illustration. I'll just do it out loud for you, okay? We'll do a little bit of this now. You just watch me do it. I will talk out loud what I would talk inside. Suppose I come into year 2000 and I'm feeling absolutely like a failure. Last year was terrible. I hardly ever read my Bible. I hardly ever prayed. I mouthed off over and over again in the wrong circumstances. Lust got all out of hand, blah, blah, blah. It was one awful year, and I frankly feel worthless and hopeless as I enter the year 2000. So suppose that's where you are now. And you hear a sermon like this. You say, well, it isn't work. It didn't work last year. It was worked. I, got lots. I grew up in the church, for goodness sakes. My head's stocked full of Bible knowledge about the exodus. 
Doesn't work. All right. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I remember a day 2,000 years ago when on a Roman cross of execution there was the greatest, most loving, most kind, most gentle, most wise, sinless man that ever was hanging on the cross. I will call this to mind. And he is suffering greatly. His head is thorned and his face is beat up. His beard is plucked out. His back is lacerated. Nails are through his hands and his feet. He can barely breathe. He has screamed himself hoarse and can no longer scream and is on the brink of death. And next to him, on either side, is a thief. They have both railed at him, cursed him. Get yourself and us down if you're some big shot messiah. And then I will call to mind that one of those thieves suddenly, inexplicably, awesomely looks over at this Christ and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I will call to mind where that come from. He was cursing the Lord. He was making fun of this bleeding Messiah. Where did that come from? And I will remember the work of grace, the work of sovereign grace in the 11th hour. Here's a man who did nothing but wrong all his life, never had a, one act of obedience of faith, deserves hell, and is about 20 minutes away from hell. And he presumes to say, Remember me. Remember you. I'll remember you. I'll send you straight to hell. Right? That's what I do with people like you. Thieves all their life long. I will meditate on the mighty deeds of Christ who looked over the nail on his right hand and said, and the planets didn't stop to move or stop moving for some reason. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And I will... I will not leave that and go off to my pity party and say, it doesn't work. I've got that knowledge in my head and it doesn't change anything. I will linger with that sentence. I will stay with that sentence. I will take hold of that sentence and not let it go until it blesses me. And it doesn't have to be long with that sentence for me anyway. Today... You thief in the eleventh hour with nothing to commend yourself to God whatsoever. You don't even have time to get out and obey and show yourself that you're real. You're going to go straight with me to paradise. What kind of grace is that that I might be a part of? What kind of power is that that can get a man from across to paradise and 24 hours. What kind of authority decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? What kind of immediacy is this that he says, this very day you will be with me in paradise. No purgatory. No time for penance. Straight to glory. And I will muse. I will muse on the mighty deeds of my King Jesus. And I will not let it go. I will continue to stay with it. I will ask questions of it. I will brood over it. I will contemplate this conversation and where it came from and the grace that was on it. A God who is angry with His Son, whose anger being absorbed by His Son frees Him to bless 
a thief with repentance so that the thief appeals to the son who being crushed under the wrath that I deserve gives grace back to the thief when he would be feeling self-pity if he were me instead of blessing another person and I will simply soak for as long as it may take and if it doesn't work here I will go to the next thing that happened in the mighty deeds of God do you quit Who's taught you how to live the Christian life and say, well, it doesn't work? Who's taught you to say, because it's on the hard drive, it has a weather-like effect on my life? Just, whoosh, it blows over. It doesn't. The hard drive is just worrying until you remember. I will remember. I will meditate. I will muse. We must become an intentional, purposeful, active, aggressive warrior people who fight for delight. It doesn't come automatically. We fight for delight. Okay. I close with this very practical plea, summons, call, and this. Will you, this afternoon, before you go to bed tonight, if you haven't already got it, take enough time, five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, whatever, to plan when in your days you are going to read the Bible every day in the year 2000? When? If you don't have a time picked out, it won't happen. If you say, I'll read it tomorrow whenever I get a chance, there will be no chance. Satan will see to that. Your flesh will see to that. If you don't plan to read the Bible at a particular time, you will become a hit and miss hazard Christian and weak. Second question to ask this afternoon is, where will I read the Bible? Closet, kitchen, bedroom, living room, den, car, conference room at work, park. You choose. If you don't have a place picked out, you'll stand in the halls and you'll say, there's no quiet place. There's no place to go. Music in there, TV's in there, cooking's in there. There's no place to go. Well, let's check the email. That's fun. You never know what you might get sent. Susanna Wesley had 16 children. Housewives, she knows where you're coming from. So, five little kids, noise, noise, noise. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Two of them are sick. Susanna Wesley was such a disciplinarian that she taught these 16 kids... When you walk into the kitchen and my apron is over my head, you don't say a word. That's her closet. She's created one. And she was strong enough, really strong. I'll read some maybe of her excerpts from her words on Wednesday night. Really strong that they obeyed. When mommy's apron is over mommy's head, we know what's happening. The Bible is open and she's praying. And you don't. Go into the holy place. It can be done if you want it, if you believe in it. And the third question, when, where, and how? How are you going to do it? If you don't have your own way, you got to have a way. I tell you, I've been working at this now for 48 years or so. And I know a lot about defeat in Bible reading. And one of the defeats that's most painful is to have the place, have the time, sit down and open the book, and you don't know where to go. I ought to know where to go. I'm a pastor. 
And you just open it, you say, well, Malachi doesn't look right. And son look right. And, and Satan will actually persuade me that's a good enough reason to reach for a book on theology. Isn't that crazy? And if it happens to me, probably it happens to you. And therefore, we just got to have some guidelines. You don't have to keep them. You just got to have them there so that you can fall back on them if there's no better thing to do that day. Okay. How, where, and when will you, if you don't already have a plan, take whatever amount of time, 5, 10, 15 minutes a day, to plan to do it? I'm not asking you to, to do it. Isn't that easy? I'm asking for intentionality here. I'm asking for a plan. And you might in your heart even make it a vow to the Lord. Okay. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Father, I ask you that you would fulfill every good resolve and work of faith by your power. Bless these people who have seen the way to live the Christian life as a life on the Word, meditating, musing, remembering. And Lord, make it part of our arsenal of how we triumph day in and day out against the evil one. Oh, Lord, make us good warriors, I pray. Help us to know how to fight for delight. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.